back. It's like deja vu. See, I love the 11 a.m. service because, like, you guys laugh at stuff and it makes me feel like I'm funny, so that's really cool. Uh, appreciate you guys. <clears throat> yeah, you are awake. Yeah, 9 a.m. is so early. Uh, sarcasm. So let's go ahead and do this. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and take it out. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, our ushers are coming down the aisles now. You can raise your hand and they will get you a Bible. Um, just turn to the end of Galatians 5. That's where we're going to be. You can hold your spot there, um, but we will start with that. So Galatians 5. So a little bit more about me. Like I said, my name is Greg Lindsay. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here, specifically on the job side of things. I help to oversee operations and communications. So my background is um, PR, journalism, went to ASU, Cronkite School. I've done a bunch of random things in my life, but for the longest period of time, I was in the marketing and public relations space, and then longer story short, ended up in ministry following uh, God's call into that, and here I am. So communications team is one of the areas that I oversee. We've got a great team, um, and I think we've taken a lot of strides in the last couple of years in particular on trying to help communicate the things that are going on around our church. Um, so that's the communication side. On the operations side, uh, typically, if you see me on Sundays, the area that you see me probably the most is working alongside our volunteers and helping to make sure that our Sunday services uh, flow as smooth as possible. Uh, and then I also, over this past year or so, started moving into a role where I work with our elder team who kind of sets the vision and direction of our church and uh, work with them to get that vision and then with the rest of our staff to help turn that vision into tangible goals, objectives, tactics. Some of you hear that, like 10 of you are like, that's really cool, goal stuff. The rest of you are like, glad someone does it. Yeah. <laughs> and that's me. <clears throat> someone was like, yeah, yeah, that's you. So that's a little bit about me in the work side. Personal side, um, I've got a picture of my wife, Michelle, and our new nine-month-old. It's the cute baby thing, right? Like, I get you here, and then you're in. I got you hooked, right? Our beautiful son, Everett, uh, was born in March. It's been a year, and not just because we have a newborn, but we'll get into that. <clears throat> so this is our family, um, and yeah, happy to be here. So that's a little bit more about me. Uh, let's, before we jump into scripture today, would you bow your heads and pray with me? Jesus, we love you. We pray today that um, you would speak to us through your word. We pray, Lord, that you would work through me, that you'd work in the hearts of all of us here to be convicted where we need to be convicted and encouraged where we need to be encouraged and that we would see the truth, Lord, that you give us true freedom. Pray these things in your name. Amen. So like I said, we're going to be at the end of Galatians here. Why? Well, pretty much because Ricardo was like, hey, Greg, could you preach on the 30th? And I was like, sure. I've been in Galatians for a while. Let's do that. I've been sitting in the book of Galatians a lot this year, um, and I think it has a lot of tangible uh, stuff for us, especially as we're going into the new year. Because as we go into a new year, if you're like me, uh, you'll often kind of put together new goals for the year. There's that goals thing again. Uh, we have New Year's resolutions, things like that. Sometimes we do them, sometimes we don't. Sometimes we do them for months, and other times they last about a week. But what Paul is talking about specifically at the end of the book of Galatians is a long-term acts 
of mutuality. It's, it's this long-term, what it looks like to be a member of the family uh, of God, brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and Paul is really answering the question in the, the passage that we're looking at today, why, what difference does the gospel make to our relationships? What, what difference should the gospel make to our relationships? And so a little bit of background context on this passage. Um, Galatians 5, very quoted section of scripture all over. And Paul is, is writing the whole book of Galatians to basically argue against um, some false teaching that was going on in the church of Galatia. It was a group called the Judaizers, and they were basically preaching um, works-based faith. So they were saying that in order to truly be saved, in order to truly be Christian, you needed faith plus something else. Whether it was the law or it was you needed to be circumcised, um, they were preaching this to this false gospel to the church in Galatia. And so Paul is writing to correct these things, to call these, these Judaizers out, and he's just swatting them down all through the book of Galatians. He's reminding the Galatians of the promises and the hopes of the gospel. And he, he does that very succinctly and very clearly here in Galatians 5.1, where he says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So he kind of presents this like, oh, yeah, that makes sense, duh. He says, for freedom, Christ has set you free. So Christ set us free so that we would be free. Sure, that makes sense. I'm tracking with you, Paul. Cool. And then he says, so do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So what Paul is saying is, as Christians, as, as followers of Jesus, you are free. Live like it. And he continues through the book of Galatians, specifically in chapter 5, to outline what that looks like. He's, he's reminding the Galatians of these promises. And, and he says that we're called to freedom as Christians. And, and uh, verses 13 and 14, um, what we have on our volunteer shirts, he continues. He says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And that's, that's our volunteer shirts. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And in our volunteer orientations for our Sunday service team, you know, we've got those on our shirt, that verse on our shirts. And we do a Bible study of this, this passage, all of Galatians 5. And every time we do it, it blows my mind that Paul says here that the whole law is fulfilled in one word or phrase uh, to love your neighbor as yourself. By loving your neighbor as yourself, you are fulfilling the whole law. That's mind-blowing in its simplicity, but also its complexity. He continues here by, by contrasting the works of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit. In verse 19, he says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, and he has a big long list, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. Do you have any sorcerers in here? Would you, would you tell me if you were? Probably not. So he continues, enmity, strife. It's all these things, right? The works of the flesh. He's saying, don't live into this. You are not uh, a slave to the works of the flesh any longer. And he continues, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. So Paul is saying that we have a job, we have a responsibility, and the Spirit, that God has a job uh, that he's doing as well. Our job is daily to turn away 
from these works of the flesh, these sinful desires, and toward a longing and adoration of Christ. And, and at the same time, the Spirit's job is, is the Spirit is working in us to grow the, the fruit of the Spirit, this multifaceted fruit, this list of things that, that qualities and characteristics that he's growing us as believers in. The theological term for that is sanctification. And basically it just means God's work to grow us more and to be like him. So, so Paul continues, uh, and he says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Paul is saying, live in freedom. You are free. What we see is that the gospel creates a whole new self-image where we don't have to compare ourselves to others anymore, which is very contradictory from, from the culture that we find ourselves steeped in, where we're defined uh, often by what we do or don't have, like, follow, pursue. The gospel frees us from that. And Paul wants to show us how keeping in step with the Spirit will transform our relationships. And at its heart, it means we won't become conceited, is the word that he uses. Uh, in verse 26, he says, Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This word that Paul uses there, conceit, literally means empty of honor. And so what it means is it's a deep uh, insecurity, a perceived absence of honor, leading to a need to prove our worth to ourselves or others. Uh, and we do this, right? We compare ourselves constantly, consciously or maybe subconsciously to others. And, and sometimes we, we feel like we come up short when we're comparing ourselves to others. We can feel inferior uh, it's this, the word that Paul uses here is envying. When we, when we feel that way, we can compare ourselves and say, man, if only I could just figure this out. That person has it together. I wish I could be more like them. And that can lead to us feeling devastated, to feeling shame that's, that's unbiblical, that, that is the root of, a lie, of the lie of the enemy. It's, it's the root of the works of the flesh. And that is what Paul is calling us uh, to freedom out of. On the flip side... We can feel superior or provoking, as Paul uses here, where we can look at others and think, wow, man, at least I don't have that struggle. And that can lead us to feel puffed up or, or great or uh, like we are more than we are. And Paul is calling that out just as much as well. And he's saying uh, that this provoking or envying, this, this superiority or this inferiority, it's really pridefulness or shame and neither of those are what Paul is calling us to here through the, the gospel. And what that looks like in the context of relationships can be uh, moralism or hedonism. There's moralism, so Paul is saying, you're free, don't do these things. And, and when we live in our relationships uh, through the lens of moralism, we lose our freedom by seeking salvation in rules, others, approval, or, or reliance on us, to show that, that we're enough. On the flip side, there's hedonism, where we abuse our freedom by rejecting the ideas of rules at all. We lack a commitment in relationships, uh, and, and we only need, through hedonism, others as they fulfill us. But as soon as there's a rocky ground in a relationship, uh, someone living in the lens of hedonism is out. They're, they're not in that. Both of these things, Paul is saying, is, is works righteousness. This is the root of what these Judaizers were essentially telling the Galatians uh, to live in. Do these things plus faith. And Paul is saying it's just faith that saves you. You are free through faith alone. 
This is works righteousness because it's finding our worth or identity in others instead of God. What Paul is calling us to uh, is true humility or gospel-centered humility. And this is an often quoted uh, uh, phrase, but C.S. Lewis puts true humility this way. He says, true humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Tim Tim Keller calls that self-forgetfulness. So Paul is saying, you are free. Live like it. Don't live under the tyranny of the flesh any longer. Don't live like you are still shackled by the works of the flesh or the lies of the enemy. You are free. Will you live like it? And in reading this, uh, it reminded me of a movie that I like quite a bit called Braveheart. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's kind of an indie flick. came out 20 years or so ago. There's this iconic scene in Braveheart, right, with blue face paint and all, where he's riding up and down in front of the Scottish army that's about ready to run because they're facing insurmountable odds against the the British army. They're trying to to fight for their freedom. And and William Wallace, Mel Gibson's character, uh, addresses them, and he says, he acknowledges first that they are free. They're already free. And then he asks, what will you do with that freedom? He says, sure, you could run and maybe live for another day or, or years, but you'd be living under the tyranny of British rule for the rest of your lives. Or, he says, you can stay and fight and show your enemies, and here's his famous line, that they may take our lives, but they can never take our freedom. Yeah, see, you know. P.S., I think I'm really checking off a lot of boxes for, like, 90s Christian pastor sayings. We've got C.S. Lewis, Braveheart. I'm going to bring out the felt board here soon and maybe, like, a cool Christian shirt that looks like a brand. Not doing that. So Paul is telling us the gospel gives us true freedom. What will we do with that freedom? Only the gospel can make us neither self-conceited nor self-disdaining, but both bold and humble. The gospel humbles us because it reminds us that we are sinners only saved by grace and faith in Jesus. But it emboldens us because it says that we are loved and adored by the only eyes in the universe that really, truly matter. So the gospel gives me a boldness and a humility that can coexist and that can increase together. We have to constantly preach this to ourselves. Often when we find ourselves uh, envying or, or feeling inferior and comparing ourselves, we have to preach to ourselves, what they think of me isn't important. Jesus' approval of me uh, is my righteousness, my worth, my identity. And on the flip side, when we're feeling puffed up or prideful or, or provoking, we have to preach to ourselves what I think of me is not important because I am just as much a, sim- a sinner uh, undeserving of the grace that, that Jesus freely gives. So we are free to enjoy this world truly through the gospel because we no longer need to fear it nor worship it. So how do we live our lives in the freedom of the gospel? Well, Paul outlines this through four scenes here, which is where we'll spend the bulk of our time. But what we see is it's through acts of long-term mutuality, acts of long-term sharing, uh, of loving our neighbor, and of loving uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ. So he starts off here in uh, chapter 6, verse 1, and he says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And I love that he starts with this, right? Like, 
This is like the hardest thing to do. It's like, oh, you want me to serve? Oh, okay, yeah, I'll serve. Oh, you want me to be in community with people that are like similar and it's kind of fun, we can do cool things, cool. Uh, you want me to give? Uh, okay, sure. You want me to actually like now talk to people that are caught in sin and have hard conversations? But he's leading with that, right? He's saying that we as believers uh, are to address these things. And the word that he uses here, caught, uh, gives this image of like a fish caught in a net. And so what Paul is talking about here in particular is the idea of people who are caught in long-term habitual um, sin or works of the flesh, you know, these sort of things. And he, um, it's a pattern that someone has fallen into. And he gives us a, a blueprint, essentially, of how to respond. And it, two very important things that he says here. First of all, uh, he says to restore gently. To restore gently. And the image here is basically that of like a broken bone and, and, and setting that broken bone in place. And I said I've, I've done a lot of random things. One of the random things I did for about four years, I was a, an EMT with Phoenix Fire Department, um, worked on their crisis response team, did a lot of ride-alongs. And in order to become an EMT, you have to get certified. And part of the certification is this, um, essentially you're, you're in an emergency room all day. And I think, because there are harder tests after that, I think basically with that, they're just testing to see, like if you run away screaming and crying, well, you're not gonna be an EMT because you won't be able to like take that. But I lasted. So there was a lot of crazy things. I'm not gonna go into detail, but there was um, a, a patient who had a broken bone from a car accident. Um, and I say I'm not gonna go into detail because I understand that people are squeamish. And just saying that, if Ricardo was here, he'd probably be in the back like, oh, like, don't worry, it's a broken bone. Don't worry about it. So I'm just this EMT, like EMT in training. I'm not even certified. And I'm like standing in the corner of the room next to the nurse that I'm shadowing that day. The doctor comes in, the patient is like out, like, you know, has like sort of twilight drugs. And um, the doctor comes in, sees me, she's like, all right, uh, you um, hold his leg and I'm gonna set the bone. And I was like, me? Like what? Are you, is this punked? Like that was punked was cool then. Just being honest, that's what I thought. Uh, she was like, no, 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 just hold, hold his leg and I'm gonna set the bone. And I was like, I can do that? And she was like, let's go, let's go. I'm like, okay, so I hold his leg, she sets the bone, and yeah, that happened. And then like a few seconds later, it was like, if you saw the viral video, David after dentist, the guy like did this thing, he was like, Aah! and I, like, I was like, oh my gosh, I did something wrong, I screwed this up. She's like, don't worry, it's just the drugs, he's kind of loopy. And he was loopy, because then he started going like in his like bed. And he was like, what are you guys doing here? And she was like, you're in the emergency room, sir. Like, you know, you had a broken bone, we're setting your bone. And he's like, you're setting my bone? That's not cool. I thought we were cool. Like just, and then he was like, hey, turn up the music. Like, sir, there's no music just in your head. Right, but I had never seen a broken bone, let alone like help set one. I mean, it was sort of a passive thing that I did, but I've, I've never had a broken bone, never seen one. And uh, here's one thing the doctor did say. He's going to feel it later. It's going to hurt. And that's the idea that Paul is giving here. Um, doing these things, like restoring gently uh, in these transgressions, it's going to hurt. But it's a healing hurt. It's a restorative hurt that leads to long-term growth and health. And that is how Paul says to do these things. You who are believers. And the next thing that is just as important here is he says that while we're doing this, we should keep watch on ourselves, lest we too be tempted. 
And Paul is saying here, if you don't have a gospel-centered view of yourself, uh, if you're falling into the provoking or the envying, this isn't going to work. Uh, because we can't do this gentle restoration unless we realize that we're just as prone to sin as the person that we are trying to gently restore. It's got to come from a place of love. So we're to uh, correct transgressions as a family of believers. He continues here um, in verse 2. He says, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So Paul says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And this echoes back uh, to verse 13 and 14 where we have on our volunteer shirts where he says, for you were called to freedom. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the, the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Similarly, he's saying we fulfill the, the law of Christ by bearing one another's burdens. And that word burden is this idea of an unbearably heavy weight that one person couldn't carry on their own. And so Paul is saying, um, serve one another in love by carrying those burdens. Help those people underneath the weight of those burdens. And I said earlier that it's been a year for my wife and I in particular. Um, It started in January. My wife was in a car accident. She was in the hospital for four days while seven months pregnant. So that was terrifying. Uh, We had Everett uh, in March and the, the birth process was intense. She had a thing called back labor, which we didn't know was a thing, and it's real bad, like not fun. It's a lot of pain. And it took a long time till she could get the epidural, and it was a whole thing. Everett had to go in the NICU for a while. Uh, but by Friday, when Everett was born, we finally felt like we had this calm, it, in the midst of the storm at least, but we were hoping the storm had kind of passed. And we were just finally able to hang out as a family in, in the hospital room. And we were starting to accept some family of our own to come and meet Everett. Um, And one of the family members that came to meet him was my sister-in-law, Angie. It's Michelle's youngest sister. And we were, like, going back and forth. Can she come? Can she not? Can she make it? Can she not? Finally able to come and meet Everett. Uh, We had plans the next day to to have dinner together and kind of hang out over the next week as we got home from the hospital. So she came um, and spent about an hour and a half with us. And it was just beautiful time. Um, she just adored Everett. And so she left, had plans that night. We were there. We passed out that night. We were just so tired. And around four or so, my wife's phone just started ringing off the hook from a blocked number. We didn't know what was going on. <clears throat> Finally, around 6 a.m., uh, she answered the phone, and it was a highway patrol officer who said, I need to talk to you. And she was like, what? Half asleep? Like, what's going on? I just had a baby. He's like, where are you? She's like, I'm in the hospital. And he's like, which hospital? And she said, Mercy Gilbert. And there, he was like, we'll be right there. So we, we knew something bad was about to go down. And we told the nurses, texted some of the, the pastors here that we're close with, like, hey, pray for us. This isn't going to be good. We don't know what's going on. Um, about 10 minutes later, two highway patrol officers and their chaplain come into our room, and they tell us that Angie, about 1 a.m., died in a car accident. And we were devastated. Um, we were already trying to figure out this new parent thing, and, and we were suddenly thrust into this complicated place of navigating the joy of our son uh, and the loss of our sister. And we were in shock. Like, we were stunned. We didn't know what to do. Uh, we were lost. And within about 30 minutes, 
the pastors I had been texting were in our uh, hospital room. We had friends who were with us, who were crying with us, who were praying with us, who were just with us, who weren't going to let us sit in that weight by ourselves. They started this, this plan where they, like, they had some people go to our house before we got home from the hospital, and they cleaned it, like, in places that I, I, I thought I was a grown-up. I didn't know you were supposed to clean. The top part of the stove where the knobs are, but apparently you're supposed to clean that. They, like, swept under the washer and dryer. I'm like, nobody's going to see that, but thank you. They cleaned our house. They, they stocked our fridge, and they started a meal train. Typically, meal trains, when you have a baby, I, I gather about a week or two. Ours, we extended to a month. Uh, and it filled up, so we extended it longer, and it filled up, so we opened some lunches, and it filled up, so we opened some breakfasts, and it filled up. People were, were in our lives. They were with us. They were, they were there telling us, you are not alone, and this sucks. We're with you. We're grieving. We're praying with you and for you. This is the example of, of carrying, bearing the burdens that Paul is calling us as the family of believers to do. And here's the thing, in particular, going through this burden this year um, that I've learned. One, this one's kind of obvious, you can't bear a burden if you don't know the people who are carrying the burden. This can only be done in the midst of community. This can't be done if you don't know who's bearing the burdens or who's carrying these burdens or, or how to help them. Uh, this, this can't be done if, in, in the absence of community. And on the flip side of that, those going through burdens, people can't help you if you don't let people in. People can't help you if you don't share and be vulnerable with what you're going through. Paul is saying this just as much to both sides of the equation here. So that's number one. You can't do this without community, without being committed to a group of people. And number two, you can't do this similar to correcting transgressions. You can't do this if you don't have a gospel-centered view of your self-image. And Paul uh, addresses that here when he says, um, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Kind of seems like a random interjection, but it's not. Paul is reiterating this point to remind ourselves that we are free from the world uh, so that we can love our neighbor well. If we fall into the provoking side or the envying side, we're going to be distracted from the actual loving of, of our brother or sister in Christ or our neighbor. So Paul says, don't lose sight of that. So we're to, to bear uh, burdens. And then Paul continues here in verse 4, um, and it seems kind of weird, almost contradictory, but it's not. Stay with me. He says, but let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. So Paul, you said, bear one another's burdens, but then you said, everyone has to bear their own load. What's going on here? It's two different words, right? So burden is this idea of an unbearably heavy weight that one person can't do alone. The word for load is, is like a backpack. Uh, if you're like me, at least in high school, I had a backpack with a ton of huge textbooks. I think there's like e-books now. You guys got it real easy. I also had to walk uphill both ways to school, so I'm there. But also, it literally meant like the, the packs that Roman soldiers would wear, and they were responsible for carrying that. They couldn't give that to someone else to carry. That's not how it worked. And so these are two different ideas that Paul is getting across here. This idea of the load is, uh, is 
is the fact that God has given all of us a different set of circumstances, of opportunities, of strengths, abilities, talents. Uh, and what, he, what Paul is saying is God expects us, we have a responsibility to steward those well, to use them well, to share those things and, and to serve one another uh, through love. We see, uh, and then he continues by saying, uh, comparing yourself to yourself. And, and this too might seem a little contradictory because it's like I thought we weren't supposed to compare. What Paul is saying is we don't compare ourselves outwardly to other people, but what we can do is compare ourselves to ourselves. Because when we do that, we see over the long term the Spirit's work in our heart. We see the Spirit's work in our life. We see the growth of the fruit of the Spirit by looking at where we are today compared to a year ago, five years ago, seven years ago. And in that, that act of comparison with ourself turns our heart to that longing and adoration of Christ. And so he says, compare yourself to yourself because you are to carry your own load. You have a responsibility to use well the things that God has given you. So we are to, to serve and use the gifts that God has given us well. Uh, and then finally, he, he ends this four snapshot uh, area here in verse six. He says, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Ah, oh, is he going to talk about giving? Yeah. If I was Josh Butler, I would say turn to your neighbor and say it's going to get weird. <laughs> but I'm not Josh Butler, so I'm not going to do that. Yeah, so Paul says here that we're to share all good things. And he specifically here references uh, to the ones who teach. Uh, and, and what he is talking, it absolutely has, financial is part of that. But he's saying share all good things with those who teach. I think the application for today is, is continuing that point of carrying your load. Again, God has given us everything that we have, money included, our gifts and abilities, and, and God expects us to steward those well. And that includes sharing them with one another as we're able to, as we're led by the Spirit. Uh, and so Paul is definitely talking about giving here, but he's also talking about sharing all good things that we have as there is a need, as the Spirit leads. This is continuing the idea of, of mutuality over the long term. So just as, as pastors and church staff share their gifts with the church, we are to share all good things we receive as well, including financially. This reminds me of uh, a podcast that I listen to um, called Hidden Brain. It's an NPR podcast. So I made the 90s references earlier. Now I'm doing the podcast stuff because, like, for the younger generation, I'm cool, right? I listen to podcasts. It's a cool thing. It's called Hidden Brain. It looks at, like, social, psychological issues. There was one in particular that I was listening to recently that um, basically made a case for local print journalism, which near and dear to my heart because that's where I came from. I mean, that was, like, what I, that was my major and all of that, and then all the newspapers closed, so... There goes that, uh, that idea. But he's talking about that, uh, how especially 2008, 2009, a bunch of local print newspapers closed, and they uh, are interviewing these researchers from some prestigious university who were able to tie the closing of local newspapers with an increased cost for taxpayers. And it's crazy. The reason, the way that they found this out is as local newspapers were closing, that watchdog factor of reporting specifically on local issues was going away. And in the places where that happened, um, 
when the local municipalities and the cities would uh, get loans for different projects around the city, their rates were going up because of an increased weariness of corruption, because there was no checks and balances there uh, from that local news. So that was being transferred to the, the county as a whole through tax taxes. All of that to say, his main point was that, that the local newspaper is not a consumer product. So I'm not trying to make that argument, because I listened and I found it really compelling, and we didn't, we're not buying the Arizona Republic. Sorry if you work for the Arizona Republic here. Uh, but what I do think this ties into is similarly, the church is not a consumer product. The church full, uh, functions as a long-term community of mutual gift sharers so that we are to come together and share all good things with one another as there is a need, as the Spirit leads. Without our church family, we lose the interconnected community of believers uh, to grow together, to bear and share together. So the church is not a consumer product. We don't just come to church to consume a sermon and leave. We don't just come to church uh, to consume a sermon and then give some money and leave and not be connected to the church because that is just as much consumerism. We need to be committed to the community of believers. We need to be committed to sharing with one another. So Paul continues here, and, and his, his big point is we are to commit through these four snapshots through community, uh, correcting transgressions in a gentle way. We're to help bear burdens. So we're to commit to community. We're to commit to serving, carrying our load well. And we're to commit to giving or sharing the things that God has given us. So, so Paul wraps this up and really all of Galatians uh, here at the end of chapter 6. In verse 7, he says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So Paul is wrapping this up with one final image, um, farming techniques. Agrarian or farming societies would be very familiar with this idea of sowing uh, or planting crops and then reaping the harvest. And these people would know at least three things in particular. One, if I plant wheat, I shouldn't expect to get olives. Whatever you plant, that's what you're going to get. Two, the harvest will eventually come, but you don't have control over the outcome. You can't make a fruit grow, and you can't control how big or small the fruit will be. You just got to control as much as you can the situation, and the fruit kind of does its own thing. And third, there is no quick fix for growing crops. It takes time. It's a long-term, sustained, continuous act of nurturing and caring for in the right ways of this plant uh, in order for the fruit to grow. So what Paul's saying here is that there are natural consequences of actions, both good or bad. He says, if you sow seeds poorly, you'll reap a poor crop. In the same way, if you make unhealthy life decisions, if you're inactive or um, you have poor nutrition, you will eventually reap medical consequences. If you're rude and distant to your friends, you'll reap the loss of friendships. He says, if you sow in the flesh, you will reap corruption in the flesh. Paul is saying that sin makes things fall apart. Sin always reaps dest destruction, never life and joy. 
And the consequences cannot be avoided, though we don't always know when they will come. In the same way, on the flip side, when we sow in the Spirit, or we keep in step with the Spirit, as Paul says, we reap eternal life. He's summing up all of Galatians. And Paul is essentially saying that being Christian, then, is primarily about doing good to the person in front of you, of loving your neighbor. And he says to love all people as we have the ability, but primarily the family of believers, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because you can't love your neighbor well if you're neglecting your family. So he's saying, love your neighbor, love your family. And this idea of loving well uh, is, is really well encapsulated in um, a game that one of our pastors, Jim Mullins, put together. Very creative guy. So he has you take a bunch of uh, index cards and you write down um, people or people groups that you know of on one set of cards and on the other you write things that you have. So gifts that you have or talents that you have or actual things like my garage or I have a bag of red potatoes. And you shuffle these cards up and you flip them over and then you're supposed to creatively think about how can I use this thing to love this person or people group. And it's this idea of being creative in our love for the other, our love for our neighbors, which includes the family of believers and those who wouldn't call themselves Christian. And that is what Paul is calling us to. So if we walk away with anything today, there are two main points that I think Paul is trying to convey to us. First, we are free. Paul is saying that we are free to enjoy the world because we no longer need to fear it nor worship it. So we're free. The shackles are off. Some of us might need to just sit in that. We need, might need to park ourselves in that truth and soak ourselves in the truth of the gospel that we are free. Maybe we're in a, a current struggle of fearing the world in some way or worshiping the world in some way, and we just need to stop there. That's fine. We are free. And he continues, and he says, since we're free, we should live like it. You're free, he says. Live like it. And we do that by committing to long-term sustaining practices rather than quick fixes. And in the ways that he highlights here are committing to community by correcting transgressions and bearing burdens. He says to commit to serving, bear your own load by sharing the talents and abilities that God has given you. And he says to commit to giving through sharing all good things. And that we're supposed to sow with an expectant hope that we will reap an eternal life with Christ. We don't do these things, the committing to community and serving and giving, so that we can earn eternal life with Christ. We do these things because we have eternal life with Christ. This is the natural outworking of the Spirit working in our hearts. The gospel changes what we fundamentally boast in. It changes the whole basis for our, our identity. Nothing in the whole world has any power over us as Christians. We're free at last to enjoy the world, for we don't need to fear it nor worship it. We feel neither inferior to anyone nor superior to anyone, and we're being made all over into someone and something entirely new. It's out of this freedom and grace that we are able to daily turn away from our sinful desires and toward an adoration and love for the one who has and is making us into a new creation and will return again to make all things new. Amen? Let's pray. God in heaven, we love you. We 
thank you that you are a God who entered into this world to do the things that we never could do. We thank you, Lord, that you love us and adore us. And we acknowledge the fact that your eyes are the only eyes that matter. We thank you that we don't have to fear the world or worship the world, but that we can just turn towards you and sit in the truth that you have freed us and that you've called us to a life of freedom. And Lord, in the areas that all of us in here daily forget that, God, we pray that you would um, help us in our unbelief. Help remind us through community that we have people around us who are going to correct us in the ways where we focus on worshiping or fearing the world. That we have people who are here who want to bear burdens with us. That we have opportunities and we have value, Lord, that you have given us gifts and abilities and talents to share with the world, all of us. Encourage us, convict us in ways that we should be doing that more. And Lord, help us to, to uh, loosen our grasp on the things of this world that you've given us that are hard for us to give up. Help us to remember, Lord, that you gave them all uh, and that you uh, are calling us to trust in you, ultimately. Lord, help us as we enter into this new year to just rest in this fact that we are free and that you've called us to a life of freedom. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.